Hi, I'm Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. This episode, Call Number explores Baltimore, where ALA will hold its 2024 LibLearnext conference January 19th to the 22nd. We cover the bites and sights of Charm City. First, I speak with David Thomas and Tanya Thomas, both chefs and food historians. The husband and wife duo is behind Baltimore's Heirloom Food Group, which hosts catering and educational events in the city. We discuss their cooking journeys and how the city has influenced their work. Then, school librarians across Maryland share their favorite aspects of Baltimore culture and history. Finally, I talked to Eden Etzel and Aditya Desai from education nonprofit Maryland Humanities. We explore Baltimore's literary history and the landmarks that may interest librarians. But first, an ad from our sponsor. Heading to LibLearnX? Stop by the Booklist booth in the ALA Connect section for free copies of Booklist Reader, Booklist, and their guide to graphic novels. Grab their December Stars issue to catch up on any top titles you may have missed from 2023, and look ahead to new 2024 titles featured in the January issue focused on Reader's Advisory. Plus, free buttons, reading recommendations, subscription deals, and more. Chefs David Thomas and Tanya Thomas are Baltimore-area restaurateurs dedicated to bringing Black history to their dishes and culinary programming. They share how they became food historians and how Baltimore has influenced their work. How did your cooking journeys begin? For me, cooking, I mean, it's always been a part of my life, but professionally, I didn't really start until, I think, right before, right after I got married. And it started for me because my wife was doing um, some work in the culinary space. She was doing office parties and things of that nature, not really doing it full time. And I was working for an independent record company for at the time. We brought her in to do some work and that kind of just went crazy from there for me. Um, I'm a musician by trade. So at that time I was doing music. And I was working in a recording studio, working for a production company. We brought this artist into Baltimore and we had to fill his rider. And Tanya was the one who did that. And I saw that work. I was like, wow. I mean, not only is it artistic, but you, know, you can make money at it. Um, you kind of control your own destiny. That's what inspired me to really want to pursue it full time. So it was really my wife that started me down the path of you know, pursuing culinary arts as a profession. So basically for me, the passion, even though it's not where I started as well, both David and I started differently. Our focus or where we wanted to go towards was something different. For me, it was art and fashion at the time. But the passion for me to start cooking was actually in junior high school. At that time is when they actually had what they called home economics um, classes. And that was the start for me. Because when we started learning at that time, and I was like, oh, wow, this is fun. And I was like, how can I play around and do this at home? That was the start. That was the inspiration. And for me, even though we were learning how to cook, what I initially started out doing first was baking, which was not unusual because that's where I am now. (laughs) But I started out baking and it was me asking my grandmother, like, because I wanted to test my skills out. What what does she like? And I would try baking it for her. And fast forward to the present day. You both run Heirloom Food Group. So can you tell us a little bit about Heirloom Food Group? 
you know, anything that we do, Tanya and I, we, it's, you know, about us uplifting not only us, but our ancestors. Heirloom is just that we look at it as is we take this multidimensional approach to food. Not only about food, it's about service and uplifting the Black food narrative. So everything that we do in Heirloom, you know, starts with those foundations. It's important for us, you know, to work with sustainable farms, working with local farms. All of those things really encompass Heirloom. And Heirloom is about legacy. And we always look at it as, you know, we're creating the next Nabisco or Mattel or something like that, because we have so many different things that we want to do within our company and so many different people that are involved in helping us make it happen. And what our focus has always been and always working towards how can we not only work towards our legacy, but also educating, you know, not only our staff, but the community as well, and how they can build up on their own legacy and how we can work as a company to also foster and educate the next generation and inspire them to be in this industry, you know, as much as we love being in the industry. Yeah, and I think it's too, you know, purposeful, purposeful work for us because it is us getting our people to understand that we stand on the shoulders of giants and that this cuisine that was created in this country didn't just fall out of the sky. And it was created by the hands of the enslaved Black Africans. So. Our storylines are always going to be brought that way because we know the truth. And part of our work is telling those uncomfortable stories sometimes. So whenever we talk about the work that we do, we want to make sure that we bring that up because um, we wouldn't be here without them, their sacrifice. And the work that we do is trying to uplift their spirit and the knowledge that they left. And can you expand a little bit about your mission? Being that multidimensional, you know, company, our work is uplifting the Black food narrative, you know, not only just in this country, but also focusing definitely on the history and the culture of Maryland, because a lot of that is overlooked. The culinary industry, Maryland and Baltimore does not get highlighted enough, we mm -hmm. don't feel, and that's part of the focus that we try to do, is explain that Baltimore is like one of the oldest cities in this country. And a lot of the origins or the origination of culinary food and history started in Baltimore. A lot of people think New York, a lot of people think D.C., but Baltimore was an epicenter of culinary cuisine back in, you know, the early 1800s. In the 1700s, let's say the 18th century, it started as early as that. Mm -hmm. And being able to educate people on that. And trust me, this has been a learning process for us, too. It's something that we started diving deep into it because we felt like we can't move forward with what we do unless we reach back and really tap into the history of before us and what stood before us. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like how we move forward. Even the work that we do now is how we accomplish it. We try to accomplish it. Not even just the little things we do with catering and when we come up with things that we want to offer people on a daily basis, utilizing kind of the local ingredients that are here. But like you said, with the farm, we're trying to bring back things that were indigenous to here so that we can utilize those things. Say, These were the things that were prevalent in Maryland. And this is what we would like to create from that. But also the work that we do in moving it forward is doing things that we do not only educate in our staff on a daily basis. We do it all the time and we don't have a problem with that trying to educate the community as much as possible. We do ask to, you know, to be on panels and doing discussions, but also working with some of the nonprofits like TasteWise Kids in Maryland. And when we go out into the schools and um, what we do with that program, educating the kids on where the food comes from and taste and eating healthy, we try to incorporate what we do into that at the same time. 
what prompted you to to become food historians and how does being a food historian add an extra layer or dimension to your work as chefs? We're blessed and fortunate that people have given us that title. It's not something that David yeah. and myself call each other that. Yeah. It's something I think if we kind of fell into that role because, you know, some of the people that have crossed our path in the work that we do, and we're going to start with Michael Twitty was the first. Um, and anybody knows about Michael Twitty, the cooking gene, we became friends with him years ago with our first restaurant. And he's more like family now. But he was the one that kind of started us with the first restaurant. We were already there doing things, but I think diving in deeper into not only the food of our culture, but also being able to tell the story mm. with the food that we do. Yeah. And that was kind of how we, we stumbled into this role. Yeah. And we knew that the only way we could tell the story with the food, that means that you had to research and know more right. of your history. Yeah. And it was certainly Michael Twitty who was the catalyst, was catalyst of that. There's no question that. about it. <laughs> but listen, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're storytellers and yeah. I think that's the most important thing about us. I think that's a more accurate depiction of who we are. We research information about food and through that food, through those stories, you know, history and agriculture and all these things that combine. And through that, we create a story and usually that story ends up on a plate. That's just who we are. That's how we communicate. Sure, we do a bunch of research, I mean, about a lot of different topics, and it takes us, you know, very far back in time. Um, like Tanya said, we're going back even to the African continent before the first Africans were brought here. Our work is, you know, it's deep, and it's spiritual at the same time. You know, this is not just work we do just because it's fun or just because it's profitable. This is spiritual work for us at the same time. So I think when you take that approach it just takes what you do to another level and what you, why you do it to another level. And, I, and also we feel like it's a necessity. Absolutely. I think even more so in this time that we, everything that's going through in this country where a lot of culture and history is trying to be erased, we feel like it's something that is more prevalent that we need to do this work. Yeah. Um, and we always, we have no hesitation in, in expressing to people, you know, about the food of this country and how it began and started, how it's evolved. We as a culture and as a people are not a monolith. Mm -hmm. And if you really research and understand those that were enslaved here and when they came from and the whole travel history, you would understand how we're not a monolith, how we came from so many different parts of this world to this country. How does the city, culture, or people of Baltimore influence your cooking? Well, being we were born and raised here, <laughs> especially being, I, I am very nostalgic. So, see, I know people, when they think of Baltimore, they automatically think of crab cakes. And unfortunately, that's a big part of what this city is and was. But it's so much more than that. So, you know, being able to dive deeper into understanding the seafood history of this state and this city, um, it was definitely an influence on what we did, you know, what we do now. So it's like exposing people that were more than just crab, were also oysters, were also the fish, were also, um, you know, the history of terrapin stew here. So you turtles, and then it goes back to how duck was prevalent here in Canvasback. Duck was a delicacy and it's bringing all that forward. So, you know, it starts understanding the foods that we eat now. What was it like with the foods that they ate then? And mm -hmm. part of that is also going to like my mom and asking her and then try to bring back memories. And unfortunately my grandmother has passed, but I try to reflect on the things that my grandmother would talk about. Mm -hmm. And keep in mind too, you know, we, we, we make this distinction to people all the time that, you know, Maryland, Baltimore, 
is the northernmost southern state. So as people, yes, they did migrate from the deep south, they were still in the south. Um, so I just want to make sure we make that clarification because um, um, when we talk about the food narrative, and we talk about the origins of food, they want to keep it in the South in terms of the origin of American food. And when they do that, they purposely omit Maryland yeah. and Baltimore from that narrative. But I'm here to let them know that <laughs> Maryland is the northern most Southern state. And within Maryland, um, there is a lot of different agricultural components and that's what makes Maryland so special because when you look at the state of Maryland, the entire topography here represents a big part of this country whether it's, you know, the waterlands or the coastal ways, where it's the Midlands or the Appalachians, it's all here in the state. And each of these regions represents a different part of food culture. And it all combines in the city. And we just need to let the world know what that means and how special it is to be here. For our listeners who may be visitors to Baltimore for the first time or have been there a few times before, is there anything they should try to eat or experience while they're in the city? You definitely, you gotta experience Baltimore, period. Yeah. It's so much history and culture here that there's so many museums that if you tap into it, whether it's the Baltimore Museum of Art or the Walters Art Museum or the Baltimore Museum of Industry or the, the National Great Blacks and Wax Museum and mm -hmm. the Reginald F. Lewis Museum, it's, you have all of that. But when it comes to food, Ones that are very tapped into doing community yeah. work. Mirror Kitchen Collective has a collective of different cultures and foods that they do there, and they do community work. Um, so, and you got things that are opening up every day. They're re, um, adding things down at the harbor now, different businesses, you know, women-owned, Black-owned businesses back at the harbor place right now down near the harbor, so you have the opportunity to go there. Most importantly, come to Baltimore with an open mind and don't believe, you know, all the media hysteria that, you know, it's a crime ridden city and it's worse than any other place. Um, that is not the case. Baltimore is a loving city. There's so much here to see and do. And you could eat your way through the city and be very happy. Reader's Advisory is a core service in public libraries, but how do you get staff up to speed on best practices and knowledge of your collection and what's coming out next? Join Susan McGuire, Booklist's Senior Editor, Collection Management and Library Outreach, for a LibLearNext Ideas Exchange focusing on tips and techniques you can use to up your Reader's Advisory game. Stop by on Sunday, January 21st at 12.15 p.m. Eastern Time. Baltimore is brimming with arts, culture, and history. We asked Maryland school librarians to talk about their favorite aspects of Charm City. Hi, my name is Carolyn Sagasi from Fali Elementary, school number 206. My favorite piece of Baltimore is its culture, the celebrations of the arts, the museums, the beautiful inner harbor, and of course we're not going to forget the ravens and the orioles. The birds of a flock fly together. Welcome to Baltimore. My name is Joanne Foster and I am the library media specialist at the William S. Baer School and Coppin Academy. My favorite part of Baltimore history is the contribution of the Black Watermen. 
I'm a native New Yorker, and I'll admit, I didn't know how to eat crabs when I first moved here to Baltimore almost 20 years ago. However, now I love Maryland blue crabs and oysters too, because a few summers ago, I took a teacher's professional development called The History of the Chesapeake Bay. And we visited the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, and we sailed on the Chesapeake Bay. And I learned that in the late 18th century, freed African-Americans made major contributions to Maryland's commerce. They were called the Black Watermen, and they revolutionized Maryland's seafood industry by owning businesses in fishing, sailmaking, oysters, and crabs. Hello, my name is Emmanuel Faulkner, librarian in Baltimore City Public Schools. And one of my favorite things in Baltimore is a term called Smaltimore. It is a saying and a feeling that as big as Baltimore is, there's a good chance you will run into someone you know. It actually happened today. I was running around, I had to pick up something from City Hall. And once I get inside, I greet everyone and tell them why I'm here. I turn back to one gentleman and say, you have a famous and familiar face. And if you are from here, typically when they ask what school you went to, you're talking about the high school. My first question to him was, are you from Baltimore? He said, yes. And I asked what school he went to, and he said the same school. Then he told me the year he graduated, and to my surprise, he told me the year I graduated also. Small to more. My name is Teresa Bruce, and I am a library media specialist for a pre-K through eight school. So my favorite part of Baltimore culture is the chicken box. Um, I enjoy my three wings or my four wings with fries, you know, salt, pepper, ketchup. And of course, I got to have a half and half with a little bit of ice. Um, it is so important to me. It represents my childhood. It represents community. It represents joy. It represents summer. It represents Baltimore. Staff training, in-services, local conference, Booklist can help. You can now request free copies of Booklist and Booklist Reader for upcoming staff programs so you can help train the next generation of library workers into readers' advisory and collection development superstars. Visit the Booklist website or email info at booklistonline.com for more details. For centuries, Baltimore has been called home by many wordsmiths, from Edgar Allan Poe to Tupac Shakur. What kind of literary sightseeing can be done around the city? And how do these landmarks inspire today's generation of writers? I speak with Eden Edsel and Aditya Desai, both from Maryland Humanities Literature Department, to learn more. So can you walk us through some of the must-visit literary landmarks for librarians who are going to be in the city for the weekend? Uh, sure. There is the Edgar Allan Poe House and Museum. That's a house that he lived in from like 1833 to 1835. And so librarians can go there and see the house and visit. It's a museum too, I believe. They may need to check the hours um, that it's open. But yeah, you can definitely get tickets there and see that. Baltimore's library system is called the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and the central branch located in Mount Vernon is just a beautiful building once you get inside, and it's just decorated wonderfully, and there are books, like, everywhere, and it's just a great place to go and explore. 
they have a lot of different rooms, like the H.L. Mencken room, who was like the top literary critic, like in the 1920s, I believe. Yeah, it's just a really grand building, kind of overwhelming, but in a good way. And they can definitely check that out. There's also the George Peabody Library, and it's now affiliated with Johns Hopkins University Libraries. You go inside and there's just this like spiraling staircase like off to the right some and it just goes up and up and it's just really it's a beautiful building and you go into the left and then it's just this huge array of books older books like 18th 19th century and John Dos Passos a writer he wrote there a lot when he was writing I believe in the 1900s and it's just been very well kept up and maintained and it's just a beautiful place to be able to visit those are definitely some places librarians should check out a lot of the places that Eden mentioned and really a lot of where you'll find the heart of Baltimore's literary life is in the neighborhood called Mount Vernon, which is kind of like right smack dab in the center of the city. It's a wonderful mix of kind of residential and historic and kind of you know, newer, more urban architecture. It's just a wonderful place to walk around and see. And of course, there's lovely restaurants and cafes to stop at uh, on your way of touring these places. You know, Mount Vernon is also where we have the Baltimore School for the Arts. I believe H.O. Megan had an apartment there. And also for music fans, Tupac Shakur went there with Jada Pinkett Smith. Those are two more maybe recent local luminaries in the arts. If you are keen for a drink in a very literary feel, I would highly recommend the Owl Bar, which is inside the Belvedere Hotel. That's, you know, it's kind of our local version of the Chelsea Hotel. So, you know, a lot of kind of artist types kind of come through there um, and uh, you walk in and it's just, you know, it looks like an old time kind of 30s, 40s speakeasy style kind of bar with big old bar stools and all those kinds of things. So um, yeah, definitely take a, take a walk around. And what's one surprising or little known fact from Baltimore's literary history? You know, I feel like Baltimore is one of those cities where everyone who lives here loves it so much that they sort of become experts on it. And so that when you think of, oh, people are coming from out of town, like what are the things that they might not know about? But one of the things that I thought might be interesting to point out, um, this also gives you another place to go if you're looking for some options, is Baltimore was the adopted home of the German immigrant Otmar Morgenthaler, who is the inventor of the Lena-type machine. He's often called the second Gutenberg. We actually are very proud of him. There is a high school named after him, uh, Mervo High School, as it's called. Um, and if you want to see a functioning Lena-type machine, um, there is still one located in the Baltimore Museum of Industry. So that's another place you can stop. Um, it's actually close to the convention center as well, just along the harbor, and you'll get there. Yeah, you can go for a little uh, go for a little uh, visit there to see the Lena-type machine. I think they do demonstrations if you time your visit the right way or call ahead. There's also a lovely exhibit that is modeled after the offices of the Afro-American newspaper, which is, of course, one of Baltimore's other big, not literary quite, but journalistic institutions. So, you know, anyone interested in those kinds of things should definitely check out the BMI. This might be well known, I'm not sure, but Enoch Pratt Free Library was the first open to the public integrated library system um, in the country in 1882. That's a little fun fact. Baltimore was home to authors like Edgar Allan Poe, Upton Sinclair, and F. Scott Fitzgerald. What made it such a hotbed for writers back then? Baltimore was a bustling city at the time. It was in the top two highest populated cities in the country at the time in like the 1830, 1840 era. And then as decades went on, like it dropped down a little bit, but it was still in the top 10 for a while. And there were ports and uh, manufacturing 
and just a lot going on. So it just naturally brought people there. But for Edgar Allan Poe, he was brought here as like a small child. He had like family here. And Upton Sinclair was born here and spent like the first 10 years of his life here. And then F. Scott Fitzgerald was here later than them in the 1930s when his wife was getting treatment at Shepherd Pratt Hospital. And so there was health care in the area and it was just bustling. It was a place to be. There was a lot going on. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of those strange things about the way Baltimore is represented in the media or the way people might think about it uh, today, given kind of the headlines you hear. It's only in, up until very recently that the city was really considered one of the great hubs of the nation. You know, Eden mentioned kind of how it was one of the more populous cities for a long time. I mean, it was considered sort of the second city of America for a long time. And so the industry and the railroads and the ports and all these things really just brought people of different stripes along with that artists and writers. Um, I would also shout out, it was a huge hub for Black arts. Um, we have two kind of major thoroughfares that historically were known for this. There was Howard Street, um, which is sort of being revitalized slowly. Um, so that's another place people can take a walk through. There's also Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, and these were both considered sort of, you know, our own kind of local Black Broadways or kind of Black kind of jazz uh, neighborhoods and areas. Um, you know, Billy Holiday, of course, comes from here. County Cullen, one of the great uh, Harlem Renaissance poets, uh, comes from here as well. Uh, he's a particular favorite of mine. So, you know, there's a lot of history and culture here that may not be apparent if you walk around our streets, but, you know, it's there and it kind of lives in the people and it just lives in the day-to-day -day life. Baltimore is also known for being the city that reads. Can you give a little bit of history behind why it was called that and how the city is upholding the title today? The saying comes from uh, the 1988 inaugural address of newly elected mayor at the time, Mayor Kurt Smoke, and he declared Baltimore as the city that reads. And he was aware that the city had some problems, but he truly believed that education could address those problems. And he wanted the city committed to learning, to improving schools, and to lifelong literacy. And so he declared it the city that reads, and it's a name that kind of stuck. And as Aditya said, we have so many writing groups and book festivals and just such a great environment for those, no matter what stage of their career they're at in writing that or reading that they can find here. How are today's Baltimore writers living up to its legacy? And I think the city has always been very welcoming and kind to artist types, uh, especially in the modern day. You know, along the East Coast, Baltimore remains maybe one of the last two or three kind of cheap, affordable cities if you're a working artist uh, trying to make your way in the world. And uh, so, you know, that's kind of number one reason. I think it brings a lot of people here. Um, and the city has an output that really showcases for it. You know, it's we have several local MFA programs, uh, University of Baltimore, Goucher College, not to mention uh, University of Maryland College Park, where I came from, which is a bit outside the city, but, you know, in the area. And so we have, you know, lots of writers sort of coming in, beginning their careers or even advancing their careers through these programs. Even if not, we have uh, writing workshops, you know, there's writing groups people can find. They have it at libraries, you know, you can connect with them on Facebook. There are many small presses. I'll shout out a favorite of mine called Mason Jar Press. They've published a lot of great books in recent years. There's also lovely magazines. Uh, we have a little Patuxent Review, the Baltimore Review, and of course the world famous Taco Bell Quarterly. Uh, if you haven't heard of that, yes, there is a Taco Bell magazine, a literary magazine you can check out. 
These are all edited and headquartered here in Baltimore City. We have a lot of just vibrant kind of book culture going around. Even if you're not a writer yourself, you know, there's our book festivals. The Baltimore Book Festival has been going on for a number of decades right now. It's been on hold because of COVID uh, and we're hoping uh, it should return next year, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, we also have the City Lit Festival by the City Lit Project, the Waverly Book Festival, and the Lost Weekend Book Festival by the Greedy's Bookstore. And, you know, all these bookstores as well are great places to go check out as well. Greedy Reads, Red Emma's, Charm City Books, you know, I can go on and on and on. And then the last thing I'll add, our governor, Wes Moore, was someone who made his name by writing a book about his life, uh, The Other Wes Moore. It's about his life growing up here. So, you know, you, you can't do worse than that when it comes to what kind of writers is your state present, presenting and producing. I'm wondering if either of you recognize any trends with the writers that are coming in today. What are they writing about and what are they most passionate about? I think people really identify with the city very strongly. And so they will write about what it means to live here, what it means to be in a space where there's so much uh, range and kind of stark difference between class, race, haves and have nots, you know, you can go from one neighborhood to the other and it will feel like a completely different world. And I think a lot of times Baltimore's writers begin to capture that and talk about that. And this is, of course, you know, just me. I'm sure other people might view it differently. But I think one of the things you'll find in a lot of the literary work that goes on here is that it's very grounded and it's very interested in kind of day-to-day -day life and kind of what goes on. And really, you're not going to find too much pontificating or theorizing or or intellectualizing about kind of the larger issues of the world. You know, again, it's, it's, it's a city that sort of has, you know, found its own little niche and corner and the people who live here are the ones who make it kind of work and, and breathe every single day. Um, and so I think that's what a lot of the writers are interested in, you know, talking about what does daily life look like? What are the economic struggles, socioeconomic struggles look like? What does it mean to occupy different corners in a majority Black city where there's so much disinvestment in Black communities? I think even more than literature, a lot of the times what you'll find is that there's a lot of interest in a kind of journalism or literary journalism. I think that's a tradition that's also been very vibrant and I think is also part of this literary writer identity that it has. You know, we have the Baltimore Beat, which is an alternative newspaper um, that's been around for a few years and they do really amazing work. I mentioned the Afro-American, which is, you know, a century plus historic uh, institution at this point. And I think you see that in a lot of the young people who are interested in, even if they're in creative arts, they're still trying to reflect something in what they see day to day, um, much like Tupac or, or you know, the, some of his other contemporaries. We hope to see you at Libler Next in Baltimore. Next episode, we're covering sports. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know via email or social media. Thanks for listening.